0: Okay, we're live. Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates on today's show. I have a very special guest. His name is Keith Cornelow, and he operates a really fascinating uh, podcast that I looked into. And if you're watching on YouTube, you can see the website very well put together website for Modem Mischief, M-O-D-E-M Mischief. And uh, it's really kind of about the Internet and some of these interesting characters that have been around, even to the present day. People who I'm familiar with, some who I'm not familiar with, uh, but you know, I've heard the names of John McAfee, Kevin Mitnick, Ross Ulbricht, but uh, he's gone in detail on each one of these individual shows. But Keith is also a senior podcast producer. He lives in Los Angeles. He was recently nominated as best director by the New Jersey Web Fest for the comedy fiction podcast Dirty Detectives, which he also created, wrote, and produced. In addition, he's an award winning voice actor. And again, he has a website for the podcast. It's the full name together. www.modemmischief.com I'll put that in the show notes. And the best place to listen to it, I'll also add a link, is pod.link forward slash modemmischief. But uh, he just put out a new episode today, which I listened through, about a guy named Kevin Poulsen, who some of these guys have, uh, have a lot of experience going way back, but he can talk more about that. So, Keith, Corneluk, welcome to the show.
1: William, thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it.
0: Awesome. So for people who may not have heard of your podcast or you, can you kind of talk about your background? You have other experience and kind of what led you to put together this really fascinating podcast, Modem Mischief.
1: Sure. You know, I uh, I always said that if I, Modem Mischief is a show about hackers, the dark side of the internet, um, when I was looking to start a new show, I love true crime but I think the stories that have been told about Jack the Ripper and the golden safe killer have been told ad nauseum and you don't need to hear that again. Um, when I was growing up, you know, in the eighties, I was really into computers. I think if I was smarter, I probably would have been a computer hacker, but I wasn't. So now I just tell stories about them. Um, so I always appreciated the technological and, you know, uh, people that are able to penetrate the systems. Um, And I wanted to tell those stories. I think that those stories are being told um, from a technological perspective really well in the podcast medium. But I think the everyday person doesn't necessarily understand much about computer hacking or what's going on in sort of the wild west of the Internet. And I thought that telling that story that's accessible to everyone um, would be very interesting. And that's uh, here we are 11 episodes later and um, really enjoying it.
0: Right, and you've done 11 episodes, but you also kind of have other episodes on your website for uh, select membership, right? And if I remember, so you've done more than 11 on these subjects, right?
1: Yeah, we have. We have a Patreon, um, patreon.com slash mode uh, where people can go. And for five bucks a month, we do uh, an extra bonus episode on the first Friday of every month. I've released a couple for free on, uh, you know, Apple, uh, Apple podcast or every podcast provider. Um, And then we'll be launching in Apple subscriptions later this month. Um, But those are sort of the mini stories that wouldn't necessarily make a full episode, um, but definitely make for good storytelling.
0: Right. And I do recommend people go check out your website, which, again, is mode of mischief. So you have you kind of go back to some of these really earlier uh, hackers or people involved in. You know, the kind of underbelly, like you said, of the Internet. Can you maybe talk about a few of those cases? Some people might be familiar with some, but I wasn't familiar with like Legion of Doom, Lizard Squad, Soup Nazi. Maybe you can just kind of go through a little retrospective of your earlier podcast. Sure. I, I think what
1: was really interesting, and this is from an episode that's coming soon, is that the... Um... The first, uh, the first online transaction uh, took place, I think, in the 70s, and it was actually a drug deal between uh, people at Stanford and I think it was MIT or something like that. But computer hacking has been around for a long time. And the 80s, when people were first getting modems and starting to experiment with dialing out to places, uh, nobody really knew what a computer hacker was, um, certainly not the United States government. I mean, you could log into NASA and the password was password. You know, uh, Los Alamos nuclear facility, uh, I think their password was also password. Um, So there were a lot of, uh, you know, teenagers that were interested, you know, that maybe weren't uh, as social, you know, in high school um, who were, you know, dialing out at night and exploring and seeing what was out there. Um, And so the 1980s really represented sort of the dawn of the hacker age. You had people like Kevin Mitnick, who um, was maybe more of a social engineer, than a computer hacker and that he was getting into systems by sort of faking his way in. Um, But he was one of the first people who who was convicted, uh, served real time, got real sentences. um, And now, of course, you know, runs a publicly traded company. A lot of these guys end up in uh, computer security. You know what I mean? The people that were once hacking you are the ones keeping you from being hacked.
0: It Um, reminded me of like Frank Abagnale, who was that guy who was always kind of weaseling around. So these guys were like that. And then they turned around and just became part of the defense as as opposed to tax
1: Yeah, for the most part, that's true. And and they're, they're fed. They're absolutely fascinating people. You know, there are a few people that still continue to be on the wrong side of the law. You know, Albert Gonzalez still serving time for, you know, biggest credit card uh fraud case in the history of the, you know, United States government. But um, yeah, you know, it's really interesting that a bunch of teenagers in the 1980s, you know what I mean? While the rest of us were watching, you know, Double Dare on television, uh, were getting all these secrets and hacking into NASA and things like that.
0: Right. And McKinnon himself, maybe you can talk about McKinnon because he really freaked people out, right, about how deep he got into some defense systems.
1: He really did. And Gary McKinnon is a fascinating story because I don't think Gary McKinnon ever uh, really had any malevolent um, aspirations whatsoever. He hacked into NASA because he was on the search for uh, aliens, aliens living here. You know, he thought that there were you know, there was a moon base where aliens were operating out of the United States government was hiding aliens. And he hacked in using a, you know, he hacked into the system and installed a remote access program and allowed him to poke around all over NASA. Um, and just as he thought he was getting proof, you know, somebody came in and sort of caught him in the act. And um, it was really interesting because he, well, well, yes, it's illegal to hack into, you know, NASA, he really wasn't doing anything wrong a lot of these hackers william for the most part are just on the search for information you know they're just trying to figure out what's going on there's not no one's really trying to you know crash a spaceship in the case you know case of gary mckinnon he just wanted to see if aliens were real misguided sure but you know not necessarily something that you you know want to put a guy away for but i think you know if he ever left you know the united kingdom gary mckinnon he came to the united states uh very likely the united states government would put him away for life just for seeking information
0: uh, right i but, mean that was a huge thing i mean i think there was a real attempt to really get him and uh i don't remember how it ended up but that i, I mean there was also kind of an overlap with the ufo community too because mm-hmm. he supposed he did he find proof or what well, i can't remember
1: I, I think he came really close. I think he says he has proof, but didn't really have any. And, you know, he's running an SEO company now out of Britain, and, you know, oh, yeah. wow. and doing fine. Um, yeah. And it certainly took a toll on his mental health. Uh, I can only imagine being pursued by the United States government.
0: <laughs> right. But, I mean, that's one of these fascinating stories that these guys can do on the Internet. And I learned a lot from your show about John McAfee, who passed away in Barcelona or in Spain. I mean, I didn't know all of his background. Can you talk a little bit about him, too, about how he was really something else of a character?
1: He really, really was, because my first uh, interaction with John McAfee was just as a purchaser of McAfee antivirus software, you know, back in the what was it, early 90s when the Michelangelo virus was dominating computers and shutting things down. So everybody had McAfee antivirus software on their computer, which McAfee co-invented. Um, what people didn't, don't know is that McAfee uh, divested himself of this company um, and just left, you know, decades ago. So, it, you know, he sold the company, um, had nothing to do with it, and basically enjoyed the life of a nihilist. You know, he lived with his women and his dogs and, you know. Tons uh, of drugs. Wow. Like lots of drugs. Wow. I mean, he. I think he was doing bath salts way before people knew what bath salts were. You know, there's a story where he... Um, you know did a ton of lsd uh you know and was sitting in his office crying to himself or train schedules he was an eccentric dude you know there are people that experiment with drugs and are fine and then there are people that do way too many drugs and just become you know absolutely bananas and that was john mcafee
0: but he was really one of the original there is a nexus between the tech and the hackers and substance Mm -hmm. use isn't there There sure is. I mean, even
1: now today in in, in Silicon Valley, you know, Adderall is rampant. Um, You know, there's a lot of experimentation with psychedelics. And, you know, John McAfee, who briefly worked on the Apollo space program, um, you know, he he did a lot of that as well. Um, I just think for him, it probably, you know, he took it too far and, uh, you know, got mixed up with some bad stuff. You know, it's hard to prove. You know, did he actually kill kill anyone? Did he kill his neighbor? Um, you know, some signs certainly do point to yes. Um, but he really did make a mark on the computer industry, at least with the antivirus uh, stuff. But I mean, yeah. he even he ran for president too. He was a he was a very strange guy. I would have loved to have maybe had dinner with him.
0: <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know if I'd want to call him a friend, but no. he was something else. But I mean. One of those people with that arc within the hacker community he was still active kind of social engineering or like, uh, well, it's culture jammer or something like that. So he was still kind of in the game, like that weird video of him doing drugs with the strippers and stuff. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, so it's just another example. And then there's I mean, there's another one that's really this modern kind of thing that I've looked into, which is I'm talking about drugs. In the underground can you talk about ross albrecht and silk road
1: the silk road was an absolutely fascinating story and when you're creating a podcast it's sort of a perfect storm of ba- of things that happened um you know ross albrecht basically wanted to start the amazon.com of drugs um And that was the first of its kind. You know, there was no place to really buy drugs online in a somewhat safe, somewhat regulated environment. But what Ross Albrecht did is set up a site that allowed people to purchase the same way that we might from vendors on Amazon um, cocaine. Those people would have reviews. You know, if you had a bunch of one star reviews because your cocaine was mostly, you know, flour, uh, nobody's going to buy from you anymore. So he really wanted to create trust among the users. Um, because of that, he became a multimillionaire. Um, he he was hugely responsible for the, pop, you know, for making Bitcoin so popular. Um, because Bitcoin is what was accepted in the site. If you accept cash, there is a way for the, you know, the government to trace it. Um, he really made good use of the dark web, Um and allowed people to get their drugs. In fact, you know, there's an interesting story. He actually employed a physician and several uh, several other healthcare professionals to make sure that people who were doing drugs were doing them as safely as one could possibly do them. Um, and he just wanted people to do whatever, whatever they wanted to do. Now, of course, the downside of that, which came later is, you know, people started stealing money from him. And he wanted to intervene. He hired a hitman who happened to be, of course, a, a federal agent um, to off someone from the site. So he got mixed up in, you know, obviously a lot of bad stuff. And now he's doing life in prison. You know, he was eventually caught. They were eventually able to trace him because uh, back to his uh, you know original email that he used ross albert was very careful but you know at some point very early in the creation of the silk road um you know he did slip up you know and as a result he's serving life in prison and you know there's a big debate there william you know the question is you know he provided the site that allowed people to sell drugs and obviously did people did overdose and and die as a result of that but he didn't actually sell them the drugs right. um he but was it was a so... he
0: was an intermediary but right. he was kind of like those original like, i think that ethos is very common among a lot of these hackers is libertarianism yes kind of anti-authoritarianism i think he had those two sensibilities and that was maybe one of the reasons or uh influences on why silk road started yeah
1: he a big libertarian that was one of the key tenets of his site i mean he loved to spend time in the message forums talking about libertarianism. Uh, that was hugely important for
0: him. Right. And so it is interesting. And I think you mentioned Bitcoin. I thought that his Bitcoin bank, I don't think they ac- accessed it, but it was it grew over time to some astronomical sum, right? I think it was
1: over $100 million that he had personally. And I think that the Silk Road had processed over a billion dollars worth of transactions, of course, using, using Bitcoin. Um, but it was interesting because he did not know how he was going to be able to get the Silk Road to function uh, in terms of payment until Bitcoin came along. And that was huge. you know. And then, of course, he got med- uh, mentioned in, uh, I think it was uh, a big article in Gizmodo, um, which popularized the site and got more people into Bitcoin as well. So I don't think That's you can cool. attribute all of the success of Bitcoin to Ross Albrecht, but he had a very... Uh, influential part of the early uh, recognition of it.
0: Right. Well, I mean, it's it's just off the charts today. Like, it's just, I don't know what a Bitcoin is now. Is it 35K or something crazy?
1: No, it's something crazy.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, there's a lot of other things. I mean, you don't just talk about individuals who are on there. You talk about some of these other kind of viruses and events, I think, that are really important, one of which is Stuxnet. Can, for people who don't know about that event, can you go in detail? And you talk about that in detail in the podcast, but... Can you talk about
1: that? Stuxnet is crazy. There, there are people much smarter than me that said that World War III will not necessarily be fought on the battlefield. It'll be fought online. And a great example of that is Stuxnet. Um, you know, uh, Iran was trying to get nuclear capabilities. Um, they were. It was under the guise of, you know, clean energy for the country. But very obviously, uh, President Ahmadinejad was trying to create a nuclear weapons program, um, which would pose a huge, uh, a huge problem for that area of the Middle East. I mean, specifically to Israel. So um, we're doing a podcast on this shortly, but Unit 8200, which is the technology uh, sort of cyber warfare division um, of Israel and the NSA, so working with the United States, um, developed a computer virus. And that computer virus effectively slowed down their nuclear enrichment and also sped it up. And as a result, it made everything basically unusable. It didn't. It, it basically made it so their nuclear program would not be profitable and not able to operate. Unfortunately, it worked a little too well, and it shut things down too fast. That Iran found out that something was going on. Um, but it was the first of its kind computer virus. And you know, they had to have it smuggled in through a Dutch uh, engineer and, and, um, to get it into the facility. Um, but it was a, you know, multi-agency, uh, multi-country, uh, approach to get this thing made and in, and as a result, you know, they were not able to, you know, successfully do their nuclear weapons program. Obviously things are changing now, but, um, that area of cyber warfare is becoming more and more prevalent. And, you know, the Stuxnet's uh, source code is out there for really anyone to do as they please with. Um, I, for one, find it surprising that nothing more serious has happened to a nation's power grid or water system um, or something like that using something like Stuxnet.
0: Right. That is interesting. But something like that happened in the States. Wasn't there something that broke down the uh, transportation system in the U.S.? So I thought it was like something got infected or one of the systems in the U.S. last year got busted. So these things do happen. I don't know if that was malevolent or not, but uh, that's on the horizon. I don't think there's any doubt about that. Um, Oh, yeah. What other podcast comes to mind when you think about some some of the episodes you've done? I, there's a lot of there's a lot
1: of really uh, there's a lot of really interesting ones. Uh, you know, I told an early story about the 1980s about uh, a Max Headroom mm-hmm. signal hijack. And again, it, a lot of times it comes to teenagers and people in their early 20s just wanting to have fun and get new information. Uh, somebody hacked into the signal of a Chicago radio uh television station in the 1980s uh, and they dressed up as Max Headroom, who was a somewhat popular sci-fi character back from the uh, 1980s and they just interrupted a football program it was on and um, they had this guy just talking about you know how he hates liberals and then he pulled down his pants and showed his bare ass and you know there was a woman off screen spanking him and it's it's just it Sometimes it's just fun. You know, it doesn't necessarily always need to turn into, uh, you know, a nuclear program being shut down or or, or something like that. Um, You know, we did a, a bonus episode not too long ago on ransomware. You know, which is really scary. And it's happening to many people. I think it happened to my dad randomly. You know what I mean? Where your data becomes effectively hijacked unless you pay a certain amount of money. $250, $3,000. You know, they've held hospitals hostage, um, you know, unless they pay these amounts. And more and more people are doing that. And the infrastructure around ransomware is crazy. If I were to hold your computer ransom, William, and I say, you know, you got to pay me $500 worth of Bitcoin. To get it out, there's a service that you can dial to get technical support in terms of how to set up your Bitcoin wallet and how to pay the wow. Bitcoin so I can do that. So you're talking to a real customer service agent to get your hijacked data back, which is crazy. Amazing. That is it's,
0: crazy.
1: it's amazing that somebody thought to actually monetize that.
0: Right. But they're asked, some of those are real money. They're asking for legit numbers. It's like corporate espionage or something. Like give Indeed. me all that stuff. But yeah. So it's very serious. I mean... There's some pretty clever people out there. Yeah, yeah, and there really should, are. Yeah, and I think that that's like the theme that runs through all these episodes is there are very smart people tinkering around. One of those is Midnick, right? Kevin Mitnick, very young guy, just uh, spending time online, just spending time looking around. I mean, they also have to be like, I don't know, you have to be a certain type of person. I think in your um, McKinnon episode, like the guy was, you said he was online 24-7, just like, obsessively tinkering around
1: right yeah i mean gary mckinnon had asperger's syndrome so there were certainly some you know some issues there um you know a lot a lot of these guys tend to have some sort of social anxiety i think you know in the case of kevin mitnick you know this was just a guy at the time who's, you know really overweight a little bit awkward but the guy was a charmer he could literally charm anyone to really do anything and allowed him to have fun and for him you know You know, he there was some molestation in his life. There were a lot of bad things that happened to Kevin Mitnick, but online and, you know, in the world of social engineering, it gave him a lot of control, Um, you know, and he went away, I think, for a long time and and, and didn't really need to go away for that long. I mean, I think some of the laws have changed, but, you know, uh, you know, but he found a way to make a living out of it. I mean, Kevin Mitnick has done very, very well doing exactly what he got in trouble for.
0: Um, he's still around i mean he's in his 50s i think still working just like this yeah. guy kevin here. you talk about in your most recent episode his arc of his hacking all the way in in this kind of like career arc is really something else it really is remarkable
1: yeah kevin Poulson, you know a similar trajectory with kevin mitnick in terms of the early hacking and some of the social engineering and then he has this sort of kind of redemption story you know he becomes a journalist he writes for wired he writes for the daily beast um some of the criticism of kevin polson is that is where he's getting his sources from um he did a really interesting thing uh with myspace um and he sort of wrote an algorithm to find uh uh, convicted pedophiles and sort of cross-reference them with uh you know uh uh, profiles that they were looking at and that led to some busts which was interesting um then there was the issue of i'm sure i'm sure you remember i think it was uh, last year or the year before someone posted a video of nancy pelosi um and they slowed down her speech so it made it sound that she was slurring but they did it in such a way where it didn't um make her voice go lower so it legitimately sounded like she was having some sort of real senior moment or drunk. Um, it was just yeah or drunk yeah and it was just some guy you know what i mean yeah he, you know he, he was a trump supporter just but he's just some guy you know having fun and kevin polson used his um uh sources at facebook to find out who that was and he effectively doxed him you know and you know i Look, you could debate whether or not the video should have been put out in the first place. But the reality is, is that, you know, is a guy and when you dox someone online for doing something that half the population thinks is bad, you know, there's going to be a lot of really poor repercussions. And so the debate comes back to, is it right for him to have doxed this guy, um, you know, and affected his whole entire life for something that was maybe in poor taste, but certainly not illegal?
0: Right. It was like a troll or, you know, doing something like that. So yes. there are questions about that. But Polson was the guy who who worked into the radio show and made sure he was the hundred and first caller. Right. Yeah. Yeah. There. They were
1: giving away Porsches on uh, Kiss FM here in Los Angeles. And um, he rigged the system where uh, he actually had a friend. um uh, dial in. And, uh, I think they won a couple of Porsches. He also won a few trips, uh, you know, and some money, which helped him cause he was on the run. So, uh, you know, he's able to sell the Porsches, get some money, go on some trips and things like that. So a really, really smart guy and, uh, you know, with a redemption story.
0: Yeah. Something else. And talk, talk about, I didn't listen to the one about the biggest credit card fraud. Can you discuss that episode?
1: Yeah, uh, that was Albert Gonzalez, a.k.a. Soup Nazi. Um, and that was a that was a really interesting guy because he was really in it for the money. Um, you know, a lot of the hackers aren't. They're in it for whatever they think are their own altruistic reasons. Um, but Albert Gonzalez was really interested in money and he started online. Purchasing credit cards, uh, taking cash advances from those credit cards and debit cards um, and allowed him to sort of live the high life. You know, he was in Miami. He was doing lots of drugs, having lots of fun, hacking at night um, and then eventually figured out a way to hack do credit card systems, uh, the TJX hack, which is basically uh, TJ Maxx, um, was one of the biggest credit card uh, hacks in history, and it allowed them to go in and get active credit cards um, that, you know, weren't expired or weren't going to get declined and just withdraw insane amounts of cash. Well, the funny thing is, is initially he started working with the FBI to catch other people doing that. And while he was working with the FBI, he was still doing nefarious things like, you know getting that so he was making sure that he wasn't getting caught and always staying one step ahead and it wasn't until much later that he was caught he's still in prison i think he's out due to be released in the next couple of years but a, just a really interesting hack and
0: it's incredible how much money did they say he was able to abscond with i, I can't
1: i think it was over 150 million dollars or That's it funny. was over a billion i can't remember how much off the top of my head it was it was a staggering amount of money
0: wow and what's your take on Edward Snowden? I mean, I think that some people are curious about how, how much he really knew. I, I've heard some debates about that. What's your position?
1: I think there's two sides of the coin on Edward Snowden. There is Edward Snowden is a traitor or Edward Snowden is a patriot. Um basically what edward snowden did was he found out that the united states government was spying on its own citizens they were hacked they had the ability to through the nsa hack into your phones hack into your webcams uh you know anytime you're around a computer um and he blew the whistle on that. He leaked all of that information to WikiLeaks because he thought it was dangerous. There was no such privacy, obviously, that came from the creation of the Patriot Act. I fall on the side of Edward Snowden is a patriot. Um, you know, I think that uh, the at the time, you know, I think the Obama administration said, you know, if you wanted to blow the whistle, there are ways to do that. The problem is, is that many whistleblowers um, end up in prison anyway, and Edward Snowden wanted to make sure that that information got out so that the citizens of the United States knew what the government was doing. But I think the funny thing is, is, you know, if you know your history, William, the United States government has been spying on its citizens since practically the dawn of time. I mean, J. Edgar Hoover, if he had what the NSA had, he would have absolutely done it. Um, But I think it's important as citizens that we know that. I don't think that our safety is compromised, knowing that these programs exist and shutting some of that down or at least regulating it a little bit. Um, and it's not, you know, certainly not the Obama and just the Obama administrations. Both administrations of both parties have done some incredibly nefarious things when it comes to spying on citizens. Uh, but at the end of the day, I do think Snowden is a patriot. I I hope one day he'll be pardoned. Um, you know, I think he deserves deserves it or maybe get a very light jail sentence for, you know, stealing information, but certainly not the life in prison situation or even I think some people wanted him executed. I certainly would not be in favor of anything like that.
0: But that's another couple of things that have shown up in your uh, episodes is WikiLeaks. You know, you've got Julian Assange is probably, you know, a whole nother topic, whole nother Internet topic too. how influential he was, how many people are dropping things with him. Can you talk about Guccifer? Is it Guccifer or Guccifer? I can't figure it out. To pronounce that.
1: <laughs> yeah, Guccifer 2.0. Guccifer, um, Guccifer 2.0 was really interesting um, because we don't really know who Guccifer 2.0 is. Guccifer was originally a hacker who, you know, was in prison for hacking. But um, the Mueller report that came out during the Trump administration basically said that Guccifer hacked into the DNC leaked a lot of embarrassing emails. Um, he was responsible for the disclosure that, uh, you know, for instance, the uh, DNC during the uh, democratic debates um, had given Hillary That's Clinton right. questions. Um, they clearly favored Hillary Clinton over Bernie Sanders and were trying to give her an unfair advantage, whether or not she would have won anyway, you know, is a, a, a different discussion for a different day. Um, but, You know, the Mueller report basically said that it was Russia that was responsible for Guccifer 2.0, which hacked into the DNC. There's a lot of debate around that, and we'll never know for sure. All evidence certainly points to Russia hacking into the DNC and disrupting the election. Um, They were certainly, Russia and China, doing a lot of that. Um, They've been doing that for quite some time, not just in the Clinton-Trump election, certainly in the last one as well. So um, they're always up to no good. Um, But what I think Guccifer 2.0 did was really uh, so distrust in the American electoral system. Um, And I think any major government would be interested in doing that to another government. And certainly Russia and China, you know, have a lot of interest in disrupting you know, the United States government. And that's effectively what they've done.
0: Interesting. Yeah. And I mean, it wasn't, I thought that wasn't, somebody asked in here, I think it's Lee Veltman asked, Kim.com. Wasn't he involved in that too? Do you remember that in 2016?
1: yeah we actually have a kim dot com episode coming oh. up in a, in a few uh a few episodes kim dot com we mentioned him in our lizard squad at Christmas hack it was sort of our christmas special my gift to uh the the listeners of Moda mission but that was a uh, bonus episode we released for everyone so it's available uh anywhere you listen to podcasts, um, basically what they did was they took down the, uh, Sony, uh, PlayStation network and Xbox live on Christmas day. So everybody who got a new game or a new system for Christmas couldn't use it. Um, and Kim.com, who was a big gamer himself, um, ex computer hacker, but really just sort of a showman entrepreneur, big present. I mean, he's a big guy, like six foot six, you know, 300 pounds. Um, You know, he offered essentially the equivalent of real money to get this hacking group to stop, uh, you know, stop taking down the system. Uh, They were they launched a denial of service attack on both networks. And, uh, you know, if you were a kid or an adult who loves to play video games, that was a very sad Christmas day for you. You got to spend time with your family instead, which is a
0: big bummer. Yeah. Wow. You got (laughs) to actually talk to your family. Wow. Um, And so there's just so much material like we really do live in a network world and i remember the i'm old enough to remember the original modem where you had to take your phone and there were two little circles and you shoved it in there oh, yeah and i mean that was like well, that was high technology and when i was a kid we used to kind of play games on that but i mean we've come so far i mean what uh, what do you see as other you talked about some upcoming podcasts what else do you think you'll be talking about in the future any themes or individuals or stories come to mind
1: Yeah, you know, I think we're going to get a little bit deeper into how governments are getting involved in the whole process of hacking and disruption of other countries. Um, We've got an episode coming up on Unit 8200, which is the cyber warfare uh, group of uh, the Israeli government. They had a big hand in Stuxnet, but a lot of other things there. Uh, we're going back again to the 80s in our next episode coming out two weeks from today. Uh, talk about the 414s, which is a group of, it was kind of like the first teenage hacker gang. Milwaukee, Wisconsin kids, you know, good kids ate club sandwiches after Boy Scout thing, but hacked into the Los Alamos nuclear facility. Wow, uh, I know. It was, it was sort of, and it was funny because it happened around the time that War Games, the 80s film with Matthew Broderick came out.
0: Right. Which is yeah. about hacking, right? Totally about it, hacking. Indeed. There yeah.
1: Indeed. Indeed. So we got, I, we want to tell fun stories, certainly. So there are a lot of individual hacking stories that are coming out of just guys who, you know, did some crazy stuff. And then, you know, we're going to get into, um, you know, stuff the government's done. And, you know, I, I'm certainly not a journalist by any stretch of the imagination. I'm a storyteller above, you know, above all things, but we do try to stay objective or as objective as humanly possible. Um, you know, we're working on, um, doing, uh, two or three part series on Julian Assange. Um, We want to do it right, you know, the issue with Julian Assange is that his story is not finished being told. Uh, You know, we don't really know what's going to happen to him. Um, It kind of looks like he'll be extradited to the United States uh, and probably will never see the light of day again. Um, But we want to tell those stories correctly. Um, We want to have fun with the show. um, And we also want to sort of warn people about what's, what's possible. Out there, so we'll tell some stories about you know nefarious things that happen as well,
0: right? We're just on the edge. I mean, we've only had this network system not that long 20 30 years comparatively, human history. So, I can expect there'll be very interesting things on the horizon. And then, when I was growing up as a kid, War Games was a huge movie, oh, yeah, 3D kind of DVD or anything like that. So, it played in the theaters forever. I just remember one summer, it played forever. So, people would go back and watch that over and over again really good movie ties into kind of your themes and wasn't yeah. wasn't there a hacker group that came up was it 414 or 4100 wasn't there a number that they used to use i mean that that started a hacker group i can't remember that oh it's the faceball the that was it so that was it yeah that's based yeah, that's on the coming, dial code
1: yeah it's it's oh, the okay. milwaukee area code they, okay, they said that, that their it. you know street gangs would put up their uh, you know, they were the 26th Street Gang or whatever it was. Well, they, they ruled the, uh, the phone lines of 414. So that's episode that coming it. out two weeks from today. But, you know, I'll say it's interesting, William, when you think about where cyber warfare is. You know, is um, You know, I love history. You know, right now I'm, you know, watching some stuff on World War II. And just, you know, imagine if someone like Adolf Hitler had these cyber warfare tools that are available now. The destruction that could have been done with a click of a mouse, you know what I mean, or a click of a keyboard. And it's scary to think about, you know, a dictator who's really looking to, uh, you know, uh, invade, um, they will probably be doing that, um, through cyber warfare at least to start and that's a scary thing to think about because that that can affect people they were um they're saying iran was trying to retaliate against israel by increasing the chlorination in their water um through a hack and they almost got away with it which would have poisoned the water supply for the people of israel so you see the potential there not just for inconvenience but for possible death and destruction and i think that is scary
0: yeah, no, it's important. I mean, it's amazing. So many things are interconnected, and that's it. I mean, there's huge cyber warfare, like you said, in Israel, in the States, there's propaganda, so there's all kinds of mode of mischief happening uh, to this day. You don't know who's online, who's promoting all these bots, and all kinds. I mean, it's a very diverse environment we're, uh, we're in heading into. Uh me ask the questions. I don't, do you have any thoughts about the Cypher games around Cicada stuff? I don't know
1: don't know what that is Uh, lee i appreciate i appreciate the question i have no idea what in the sam hell you're talking about but i'll certainly uh look it up and if there's uh some stuff there we'll love to make an episode around it
0: well we're at 37 minutes keith do you have anything you'd like to add anything i miss any way you want to kind of wrap it up or bookend our discussion
1: no this was a lively discussion i certainly appreciate you having me on to talk about cybercrime i think it's an important subject and Certainly, one that's very interesting.
0: Yeah, no, I think it's a very important subject, very interesting. A lot of history, a lot of uh, kind of uh, you know computer history there. Let's see. You, there's a question for you: Would the U.S. government make crypto illegal? Do you have any thoughts on that?
1: Uh, gameplay. I think that's a great question. Uh, I think they would certainly like to. Um, it's amazing what. What countries are able to lock down? If you look at the, you know, censorship in China and all the things that they'll be able to lock down, will the United States do that with cryptocurrency? I'm sure many people smarter than me could figure out a way to do that. Um, I think it's, I think it's looking that way. But then there have been reports out that the United States is working on making our currency on the blockchain and going completely digital there because of the cost of how much it, how much it costs to print money. Um, I don't know ultimately that they'll be able to, I think they would like to, but I think they see that the future is probably on the blockchain. I don't know if it's Bitcoin. I think you know, they'll probably need something faster. Um, but I think it's inevitable. Um, and you know, every government, especially the United States government has always been averse to change, but I don't know that it's something that they'll actually able to, be able to make it legal but they'll certainly make it easier to tax there's no doubt about that
0: gotcha and uh where's the best place to reach you like your website you have a contact information if anybody wants to reach out to you for any questions um yeah at- you can go
1: to, yeah you can go to modemmischief.com uh if you go to contact you can send a message i'll receive that uh, the show is independently produced um you know i do work with the team but uh You know, it's something that I do. So I answer all my email. um, All of the social media stuff is on there. Even a link to my personal website is there. Um, And you're more than welcome to check that out. Send me a message. I love, uh, you know, I love hearing from people.
0: And you have a newsletter too. So people can sign up for that. So there's a lot more shows coming in the near future. So people go sign up for the newsletter. And you're also on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube. So people can kind of follow on with that as well. And this interview will stay on all, all Twitter and, and YouTube. If you missed kind of the intro or anything like that, feel free to uh, check that out there. Um, really interesting, fascinating topic. I'm really glad that you're looking into that because it's very important. I think that just understanding this modern kind of computer networked history is vitally important. And it, it has a lot of political effects, a lot of personal political effects. So very well done job. Again, uh title is Modem Mischief by Keith Corneloup. Thanks so much for your time.
1: Thank you, William. It was a real pleasure to be here. I appreciate it. Okay. Take care. See you there. Talk soon.